Happy Reformation Sunday. If you didn't know, this is kind of a big deal here. Uh, a couple months ago, when Dr. Campbell asked me to preach on this Sunday, my first reaction was, really? You want, you want me doing that Sunday? But here we are. Uh, Dr. Campbell is up uh, helping Zan, uh, his son, with one of their felon fair things. So for some, today is simply a day to dress up, walk around a neighborhood, get candy, watch scary movies. But for us, we remember the Protestant Reformation and its importance for our religion, for Christianity. As such, what better text to study today than Romans chapter 1, the heart of the Reformation. So if you have your Bibles, please open to Romans chapter 1, and I'll be reading from verses 14 through 18. Hear now God's word. Paul says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This text right here, this is the heart of the Protestant Reformation. Paul speaks here in this text of an an earnest desire to preach the gospel to those who are already Christians in Rome. That is his desire in this text. And this may seem counterintuitive to some of us, but that's what it means to be a Christian. The gospel is not only what saves us, the gospel is what keeps us until the very end. And this is what the Reformation was all about. It's, it, I mean, it's in the name of our church, Christ Reformed. You go look at the sign, it's outside. You see the five solas of the Reformation all around this building and I mean, Dr. Campbell probably mentions the Reformation twice every Sunday. So it's important. And we need to remember that the the core of the Reformation was what Paul was talking about in this verse. An eagerness for the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what he says in verse 15. He says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you. He's ready. He is willing. He is anxious in a positive sense. And so the question going forward is, why is Paul eager to do this? What are his reasons? And that is exactly what we're going to see in our passage. Four reasons why Paul is tirelessly eager to preach the gospel to Christians. And we're also going to see in these four reasons a roadmap for understanding the Reformation and why it matters, specifically through looking at the lives of the two greatest reformers, Martin Luther and John Calvin. So let me pray that the Lord would guide our study, and then we'll dive right into learning about the gospel and the Reformation. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, your word is infallible. Lord, just as the rain falls on the earth and it produces crops and brings life, so your word falls on the ears of mankind and it does not return void. We believe that here. And so, Lord, once again, I pray that these endless truths would touch the souls of your people and that they would not return void. That as we learn about Paul and his eager desire, and about the reformers and their 
eager zeal for the gospel, may we mimic that in our lives. And I pray this all in the name of Christ. Amen. So before we dive into these four reasons why Paul was eager, let me just kind of stack up the argument of this text for us. Sometimes it's easy to just read the Bible and you're just going along and you're looking for one verse to pop out at you. But what I'd recommend for you to do is to read your Bible and try try to trace the argument that the writer is making. For instance, in this passage, Paul is saying a statement and then backing it up with four corroborating points. Because we have to remember, he was a theological lawyer for most of his life. So he would never want to say something that he couldn't back up and explain well. So he states at the beginning in verse 15, he says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you. And what follows are four reasons. And each reason begins with this four. You could also translate that as because. So, So why is Paul eager to preach the gospel? Because he's not ashamed. Because it's the power of God for salvation. Because it reveals his righteousness. And because the world reveals God's wrath. So let's look at this first reason. Paul is eager to preach the gospel because he is unashamed of it. And the first thing we need to dive into is what is the gospel? What does he mean by this? And this is something that we should never get tired of hearing and delving into in church. Dr. Campbell has said this a lot recently, that that the the Reformation was a rediscovery of grace, which is so true. But the gospel, the, the Reformation was a rediscovery of grace insofar as it was a rediscovery of Christ, who is God's greatest grace to us. Because the the church in the medieval world had become so engrossed in tradition and formality and, and duty that it often forgot God's greatest gift, which is Jesus. In its most basic form, the gospel is Jesus himself. The first verse in the book of Mark says this. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You see, the gospel is God saying, here is my Son, and he is yours. And all of his blamelessness and his perfection, yours. And this is how Romans starts as well. Notice what Paul says if you look a few verses up. It says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, Concerning his son. You see, the gospel is the presentation of who Jesus is, what he has done for you, and how he might become yours and you might become his. So that's what Paul is talking about here. And next we see that Paul is eager to preach this gospel to Christians because he is unashamed of it. He will never be shamed by it. What an interesting way to start a letter. He's basically saying, I'm going to say all these things to you that you might already know. Why? Because I am unashamed of it. This means that no amount of rejection, awkwardness, pain, loss, heartache, trouble, affliction, anxiety, or hurt could bring him shame. Why? Because he is preaching God's message primarily. He is utterly convinced that God is for him. Just think about all of the heartache that Paul endured as he was teaching this Corinthian church, as Dr. Campbell's been 
telling us the past couple Sundays. Think of all the heartache that he went through in being patient with this troubled church. And through all of that, with all of that in mind, he still has, he still has the strength to say, I am not ashamed of this message. And we see this boldness, this shamelessness encapsulated in the life of none other than Martin Luther, that great reformer. You see, Luther was, he was an unlikely man to be great. When he was younger, he was born in the late 1400s in uh, medieval Germany, and his father wanted him to be a lawyer, wanted him to make good money so he could support his family. But instead, because of fear of the Lord and fear of judgment of God, Luther decided to become a monk and try to placate the Lord through good works. You see, Luther had an extremely weak conscience. If you ever have the opportunity to read his works, you will get that sense. He was a man who was in his head a lot. But over time as a monk, as he studied the Bible, this led him to learn, yes, about God's wrath, but also about his kindness, about his love, his gospel, and that the gospel is a gift to be given rather than a wage to be earned. This was a big paradigm shift in his mind. And he began to write for years about this, about the grace of God. Not only that, but he preached in his local church and taught in the local university constantly about the truth of the gospel. And this all culminated in 504 years ago today. Luther saw a practice of indulgences that he saw as completely unbiblical. And he posted 95 reasons why those were bad things to do. And he posted it on the church door. And little did he know the fire that would come from this one action. Needless to say, the Pope didn't like those 95 theses too much. And so four years later, they called uh, the Diet uh, at Worms, which is a, a formal assembly to debate and repudiate what Luther said. And Luther was summoned here. This was a big deal. He was in front of all of the big wigs in his country. It, it would kind of be like, say Dr. Campbell wrote something that was like, you know, really edgy. It would be like him being summoned before the Senate of the United States and the presidents there, all of the representatives, and all of the pastors and big-name theologians of the entire country to question him. This is a high-stakes moment. But listen to Luther's unashamed response. Let me read it to you. This is what he says when questioned. He says, Since your most serene majesty and your high mightiness require of me a simple, clear, and direct answer, I will give it. And it is this. I cannot submit my faith either to the Pope or to the Council because, because it is clear as noonday that they have fallen into error and even glaring inconsistency with themselves. If then I am not convinced by proof from Holy Scripture or by sound reason, if I am not satisfied by the very text I have cited, and if my judgment is not in this way brought into subjection to God's word, I neither can nor will retract anything. For it cannot be either safe or honest for a Christian to speak against his conscience. Here I stand, I can do no otherwise. God help me. Amen. That's boldness right there. Proverbs 28.1 says this beautiful phrase. It says, the, the wicked flee when no one pursues them, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. I remember when I was younger, I watched uh, with my family a movie about Martin Luther that came out 
in 2003, and I remember watching it and praying to God, God, help me to have faith, boldness like that. It's, it's worth mimicking. It's worth being desirous of. And friends, being sure in God's love for you will give you boldness like this. And Christ speaks of this as well in Matthew chapter 10, um, verse 26. He says, speaking to his disciples, So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say it in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my father who is in heaven. Paul was not ashamed of the gospel because he was utterly convinced that Christ was for him. And we can say the same with Luther. He was assured that he had a lasting possession, an abiding one. Are you convinced of this? Are you sure of the faith that you have in Christ? Is your faith strong enough so that you can boldly proclaim, here I stand on the gospel and nothing else? Are you bold enough to say this before a coworker, in, in some trial, a, a roommate, a spouse, a family member? Who knows what kind of trials we are going to face in this country in the next several decades? But I have no doubt that many of us are going to have to answer for our faith in different ways than in the past. And for many of us, if we're really honest with ourselves, the answer is no. Our faith isn't that strong. But here's the thing. God is patient with our weakness. He always presses us to make Christ our own. And it's beautiful. Christ never sends away his disciples when they are stiff-necked and they don't get what he's saying. He never sends them away. But he does challenge them to grow their faith. May the Lord grow our faith. Before I, I move on, notice what Paul is not boasting in. He is not boasting in his works and what he has done. He is completely focused on the work of the Lord. So let us remember that both Paul and Luther took many years to build up their boldness. So God, God was patient with them and he is patient with us. So we move on and we see Paul's second reason for being eager for the gospel, which is in the next verse. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek it is the power of God. Paul here is absolutely convinced that the saving power of the Lord is found none other and no other place than in the foolish preaching of the gospel. And I, I think an Old Testament story will help illustrate this for us well. Because often the Bible is the best illustrator of the Bible. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 19. There's a wonderful story here about the life of the prophet Elijah. In this chapter, uh, it's safe to say Elijah's having a bad day. 
He's not, not doing so great. He, but he had just had a great day. He was just on top of Mark Car- Mount Carmel, and he had just stood before all the worshipers of Baal and called for the Lord, and fire came from heaven and consumed the sacrifice, and all of the idolaters were shamed in front of the entire congregation of Israel. So he had this awesome moment, this awesome display of God's faithfulness. And yet, right afterward, it said that King Ahab talked to his wife Jezebel about it, and Jezebel said to Elijah, surely I will kill you before the end of tomorrow. Doesn't seem too menacing, right? Seeing what Elijah just went through, but the scriptures say that Elijah's heart was filled with terror, and that he fled, and he was fearful. This bold man who trusted God so fully in one moment, the next moment cowered with fear. Does this not happen with our souls as well? Just to throw that out there. One day we see God's work so clearly in our lives, so vividly, and then all it takes is one tragedy, one text, one phone call, one thought, and then all of a sudden our faith is so weak. We lose all confidence in the Lord. And yet God is kind and patient to Elijah as he often is with us. And it says the prophet travels to Mount Sinai where Moses received the Ten Commandments. And there, God reveals himself to Elijah. I'm going to start reading in verse 9 of chapter 19. There Elijah came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand in the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a a great strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And this thin, quiet voice was the voice of the Lord speaking comfort to his servant. You see, God was never primarily found in the acts of strength and magnificence and miracles in the earthquake, in the fire or the wind. No, he was found primarily in the quiet and seemingly insignificant, consistent preaching of his gospel, of his promises. Similarly, the the world today, everyone looks for God in the magnificent things, in in, in creation, in, in strength, in power, in might, or in miracles. And yet God has chosen for the great and awesome power of salvation to be hidden in the lowly preaching of his word. This is how God works. And this was a concept that John Calvin understood thoroughly. Just to introduce John Calvin a little bit. He was an an intriguing man, to say the least. I had the opportunity to take a class about the life and theology of John Calvin this summer. He was born some 25 years after Martin Luther, so about the next generation, So he grew up in this tumultuous world, a world where the Catholic Church was being challenged and factions were being drawn, and there wasn't too much peace in Europe. 
And similar to Luther, we need to remember that these reformers, first and foremost, they were pastors. They had a congregation that they preached to every single week. And it's interesting that John Calvin was a Frenchman by birth, and then he came through random circumstances to stay in Geneva, in modern-day Switzerland, for almost 35 years preaching. Um, most people, when they hear of John Calvin, they think of some stern, grim fellow who never stops talking about predestination and election, which is not false, but it's definitely not the whole truth, um, because it's worth mentioning. It, he was a very different guy than Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a big personality. He'd fill a room with his jokes and with his laughter. And Calvin, by his own admission, was very awkward. One, of a, one biographer says this, In the public arena, Calvin walked and spoke with stunning confidence. Yet in private he was, by his own admission, shy and awkward. You see, Calvin was a feeble, often sickly man who had one tireless goal to preach the word of God constantly. And he, he was brilliant. Um, just to point out, when he was 23, he wrote his first edition of the Institutes of the Christian Religion. 23. He also, whenever he would preach, he would only bring up his Hebrew Bible and his Greek New Testament and preach straight from the scriptures. Listen to what James Montgomery Boyce has to say about Calvin. John Calvin had no weapon but the Bible. From the very first, his emphasis had been on Bible teaching. Calvin preached from the Bible every day, and under the power of that preaching, the city of Geneva began to be transformed. And the people of Geneva acquired knowledge of God's word and were changed by it. And the city became, as John Knox later called it, a new Jerusalem. Calvin was constantly preaching God's word. Uh, in, the, in the beginning of 1549, Calvin apparently rearranged his weekly schedule so that he could preach six mornings out of every week, uh, every other week. Thus, in the course of two weeks, he filled the pulpit some ten times on average. This tireless preacher expounded some 4,000 sermons in his years in Geneva, approximately 200 sermons a year. And the sheer volume of this preaching demonstrates the priority it had in Calvin's soul. Here was a man who believed what Paul said. He believed that the gospel, the word of God, is the power of salvation to all who believe, and nothing else. And this is not some temporary salvation from your struggles only. It is an eternal salvation, so that we can see the face of God after death. And this truth should bring us all comfort Friends, I ask you have, you, have you been discouraged in your walk with Christ lately? Do you try to get up early and read your Bible and it just fails? You fall asleep, you forget, it's difficult. Do you, do you think about diving into the scriptures and if you're honest, you don't get much out of it? Perhaps you're coming to church over and over again and you see little improvement in your own life. Or maybe you're struggling to raise kids and you're thinking to yourself, do all these Bible verses actually make a difference? Does all this going to church actually make a difference in my life? And to those questions, God looks at your very soul and says, my word is the power of salvation to those who 
believe, no matter how foolish or mundane it seems to look. Oh, that we would rise to believe God when he says something so plainly as this. I remember when I was growing up, uh, when my mother would discipline me, which happened quite a bit. At one point in my life, I noticed a shift where a lot of times she would appeal to me. She was like, Jack, you, you know this is wrong. And you know, I didn't listen when and sulked in the corner. But at some point in my life, my mom began to appeal to the Lord to me. She looked at me and she says, Jack, you know, you know that the Lord doesn't want you to do that. And from the, out, from the outside, it, I probably looked the same. I went into the corner and sulked. But from, she had no idea the work that God was doing inwardly through her saying that. It struck me deep. Because I know now that a minute spent with the word of God is never a minute wasted. Which is why I'm so passionate about home groups and discussing the word and preaching and singing. And this is why our services are saturated with God's word. Because we believe firmly that it is the power of salvation. And nothing else. As Paul says in Romans 10, 17, you've heard this. So faith comes by hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ. And this word comes to everyone, both Jews and Greeks. Before we move on, notice what is not the power of salvation. Our works. What you do. Either how good you're doing or how bad you're doing. And that should give us comfort. So the third reason why Paul is eager to preach the gospel to the Christians in Rome is because it reveals God's righteousness. Listen to the next verse. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, just as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So the key to this verse is that one phrase, the righteousness of God. And talk about a churchy word that it's easy to just read right past and then never think about. So we've got to dive into this. What does this word mean? This phrase, righteousness of God. It appears some eight times in the book of Romans. And you'll be pleased to hear that Martin Luther struggled with this word as well. For here is where the Reformation began for him. And while reading this text, so listen to this uh, Lengthy story by him, but I think it'll help us grasp the meaning of this phrase. Luther says, I had indeed been captivated with an extraordinary desire for understanding Paul in the epistle to the Romans. But up till this point, a single word in chapter 1, the righteousness of God, had stood in my way. For I hated that word, righteousness of God. Which according to the use and custom of all the teachers, I had been taught to understand philosophically regarding the formal or active righteousness of God by which he punishes sinners. Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God within an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction, by his works. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. And secretly, I was angry with God Thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat endlessly upon Paul at this place, most desiring to know what he meant. And at last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words. 
Namely, he who through faith is righteous shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God. Namely, by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel. Namely, the passive righteousness with which a merciful God justifies us by faith. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered into paradise itself through open gates. There a totally different face of the scripture showed itself to me. And I extolled my sweet word with a love as great as the hatred with which I had before hated the same word. Thus, at this place, the righteousness of God, Paul was for me truly the gate to paradise. I know I've been there before, where I've groaned under the weight of a guilty conscience before God. Here's the thing. All all things in life can be going well, but if inwardly you know you are a sinner before the Lord, you're in complete turmoil inwardly. And that's exactly what happened to Luther. But he found joy in the fact that God is not just perfect and expects us to be perfect. That is true. But he found joy in the fact that God grants us a way to attain perfection apart from what we do. Apart from how you live. Apart from the law. A way to calm our conscience that screams against us. Paul speaks of this in Philippians chapter 3, verses 8. He says, For the sake of Christ, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends upon faith. So friends, what he is speaking of here is when you believe in Jesus truly and firmly in your soul, The perfect life of Christ is credited to your account. And every sin that you have ever committed, the one that's on your mind right now, is imputed to him on the cross. This glorious exchange, this marriage that takes place spiritually between the Christian and their Savior, between the sinner and Christ. May this word become a paradise to you. The righteousness of God and this faith both uh, births our faith. This word birth, sorry, this word both gives birth to our faith and it grows it. And that's the meaning of this phrase, from faith and for faith. And, and Luther helped to grasp this statement by leaning into the quotation that Paul has here, where he says, the righteous shall live by faith. And if you're a nerd, that means you know that this came from the book of Habakkuk in the Old Testament. Only nerds know that. But why does Paul cite this? Why does Paul cite this book? Let me try to give you a a brief overview. So the book of Habakkuk was happening in a time of turmoil in ancient Israel. Um, The northern kingdom had been taken over by Assyria. And then the southern kingdom in Jerusalem was mired in sin. And the people were unfaithful. And Habakkuk, being a righteous man, noticed this. And it said one day he cried out to the Lord and said, Lord, do you notice all this wickedness? People are worshiping idols. People are being sexually immoral. Do you not notice this? And God responds, which is pretty awesome. And God says, I am at work. I am at work in such an amazing way that if I told you, you would not understand it. 
And then he explains, I am seeing all these wicked things, and I'm going to bring a more wicked nation than yourself to punish Israel, and then I'm going to punish that wicked nation for their wickedness. And Habakkuk's sitting there like, what? What do, I, what do I do with that? How could God possibly be good by manipulating such wicked circumstances? And we see this all the time in our world today, don't we? And so God responds in chapter 2 and he says, there are two lives. There is the wicked life and there is the righteous life. The wicked man serves himself, but the righteous man lives by faith and faithfulness. And how he knows the Lord is. He lives completely through the word of promise. And so Habakkuk ends in in a beautiful turn. Habakkuk turns from questioning to trust all through faith. And he says, though everything should go wrong and all I see is wickedness and destruction, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. You really should read Habakkuk. It's a great book. But here's what we learn from this, and here's what Paul was meaning. That as a Christian, we must trust in the promise of God even when everything in life seems to portray the exact opposite. Live by faith and not by sight. Let your life be governed about what God says about you, not what the world says about you. And is this not that inward battle that Luther faced He heard God's word about forgiveness, but when he looked at himself, he saw wickedness and unholiness, and he could not figure out how those two work together. And then when he learned it was a gift by faith, all the pieces came together. And he trusted what he heard rather than what he saw. And when you look into your soul, do you see perfect holiness? No, you don't. I don't. I don't see holiness, perfect holiness within myself. But we, that's why we trust in Christ and his message. Uh, the first line of the hymn we started with is beautiful in this point, And it paints the picture of faith. I greet thee who my sure redeemer art, my only trust and savior of my heart, who pain didst undergo for my poor sake. I pray thee from our hearts all care to take. This is the response of faith, that Christ is mine and I am his. Before going on to the last point, notice what is not revealed in the gospel. How good you are. What is revealed in the gospel is how good God is. So, last of the four reasons why Paul is eager to preach the gospel Read the next verse with me. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven upon all wickedness and unrighteousness of men. A little bit of a turn, right? It seems like he's talking about something completely different, and many interpreters believe this, but I think that the connecting words are far too perfect for this to be a completely different thought. And plus, the verb here for revealed is identical to the one in the previous verse. So Paul is proving the same point, albeit in a different way. It it would be like if I was trying to persuade someone to come to this church, the first thing I would do is I would talk to them a lot about all the good things that this church does and why you should come here. The second thing I would do is ask them questions about their church and why they shouldn't go there. I probably would focus more on the first one than the last one, but you need both. 
And this is what Paul is doing here. It, it's as if he's saying, here are all the beautiful things that you learn in the gospel. But here's what you're going to see if you look anywhere else. And he spends two more chapters after this explaining why all mankind is guilty before the Lord and justly under his condemnation. And this is something the reformers preached and lived out well. They understood the human condition. And when they preached, they appealed people not just to look at God and his love and his goodness. They appealed people to look at themselves, to peer within their souls and ask yourself, how how righteous am I? Because notice, why is God's wrath kindled in heaven? Because everyone, every single one of you, suppress the truth of the Lord through your own unrighteousness. Every single one of you. And we know this deep in our conscience, in our souls. Later on, Paul says, he says, for what can be known about God is plain to them. It's plain to all of us. Because God has shown it to them. I mean, just spend a couple minutes talking to someone or yourself about either the Sermon on the Mount or the Ten Commandments. And you will find one of two things happening very quickly. Either one, you will quickly admit guilt. Or two, you will quickly start making excuses. And both of those show that we are justly fallen from God's law. Are you dissatisfied with who you are? Do some of the things that you do trouble you? Do the things you do in secret and the things you think and say to yourself, do they repulse you sometimes? These all are signs of our fallen nature before God. And in fact, this is your conscience, your soul speaking to you that you need a Savior. That salvation does not come from you. Listen to Calvin's words on the human conscience. He says, There is within us the human mind And indeed, by natural instinct, an awareness of divinity. To prevent anyone from taking refuge in the pretense of ignorance, God himself has implanted in all men a certain understanding of his divine majesty. Since therefore, men one and all perceive that there is a God and that he is their maker, they are condemned by their own testimony because they failed to honor him and consecrate their lives to his will. The book of Ecclesiastes speaks to this as well. It says, The Lord has placed eternity into the heart of a man. So if the previous three points of this passage were the gospel, this is the law. That's the good news. This is the bad news. Because God reveals his wrath by punishing mankind's conscience, afflicting our minds to the point where on the last day, none of us will have any excuse before the Lord. God also reveals his wrath by handing over this world to their sin, to sexual perversion, to lust, to faithlessness, to envy, deceit, slander, covetousness, and greed. And this is why Paul is so eager to preach the gospel to Christians. Because he knows that if you look anywhere away from the word of Christ, you will find only God's wrath. Friends, apart from Christ, apart from the gospel, You have no hope whatsoever. And this world is no hope whatsoever. And notice what merits the wrath of God. Your works. Every single one of them. 
If God with his eyes like flames of fire were to dig into any of your best deeds, surely he would find wickedness at its core. That is true for all of us. Friends, if you find ultimate purpose in who you are and what you do and how you live, you will always wind up disappointed. If you live life running from Jesus Christ, you will face his just displeasure on the last day. And this is why we must preach both the law and the gospel, because both drive us to the cross. Drive us to the foot of Jesus. What made the Reformation great was not its people, not the great moments, not even the result, but what made it great was their eagerness for the gospel of Jesus. This is why we still read Calvin and Luther today, because they were eager to preach the gospel of Christ. And may this describe your life as well. Does your life exhibit an eagerness for the gospel? Does this church exhibit an eagerness for the gospel? And I think in many ways, the answer to both of those questions is yes and no. Yes, we have much to be commended for, but no, we have much to grow for all of us. Let me close with reading the last line of the hymn that we shall close the service with. A mighty fortress is our God. The the previous verse ends with this phrase, One little word shall fell Satan, and that word is Christ. So let me read this. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the eagerness of the, that described your Apostle Paul so many years ago. Lord, we thank you for the eagerness of Luther and Calvin, our fathers in the faith, so many years ago. And so, Lord, I pray earnestly to you that our lives in this church may be marked by an eagerness for one thing, and that is the gospel. The good news that Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom we are the foremost. Teach us this truth. Change our hearts. Mold our desires so that we may glorify you and enjoy your presence forever. And I ask this all in the name of Christ. Amen.